we're going to begin in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 12. This morning's title is A Good Wife. We have an example of an incredible woman of God this morning and her definition, just how she lived out being a good wife to a man that the Bible defines to us as a stupid, wicked fool of a husband. Gotta love how brutally honest the Word of God is, and as we're following this narrative of David, um, we watch David in this morning's passage demonstrate part of his character that is contrary to having the heart of God. And God sends this woman into his life to wake him up and to redirect him back to God. This is, this is a fabulous passage, so we're definitely going to be talking about marriage this morning, good wives this morning. The Bible has a lot to say about it. All right, so Luke chapter 12, verse 13 parable of Jesus that we want to sit into. So there's these innumerable crowds surrounding Jesus, speaking to his disciples in this context. And one from the crowd says to him, teacher, hey, teacher, tell my, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, so picture Jesus again in his, in his authority, all that he's known for, what he's been teaching, the miracles. There's this crowd that's following him, listen to his teaching, and there's this guy just calling out to the crowd, hey, Jesus, teacher, master, tell my, tell my brother to give me money. Jesus says to a man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, and listen, this is for all of us, take heed and beware of covetousness, which is this, it's this greedy desire to have what you don't have. And in context of generosity, it's the exact opposite. And Jesus defines for us all that we need to take heed and beware because all of us have this covetousness for things within us that we ought not. And what does he tell us? One's life, your life does not consist and the abundance of the things that you possess. He spoke parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, Hmm, what should, what should I do since I don't have any more room for my crops? So he said, This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. You feel it? Who, who wants to go live on a Caribbean beach? All cash, just take your ease. Eat good meals every day. Have your, have your drinks. Have your beach party every day. Anybody? I could serve Jesus there fabulously. I'd be, I'd be benefactor all over the world, give me money, I'd, I'd serve there in the community, but what does God have to say about that? God says to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? And you can sit in all of Ecclesiastes pressing into that subject matter. 
Jesus' bullet point here, or finishing point, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So again, emphasis of what Jesus is bringing out as somebody is, hey, tell my brother to give me money. The guy, he's responding to this man's heart. He, he has a greedy desire for something that he doesn't have. And he tells all the crowd that's listening, hey, this is something that you all need to take heed to and be aware of. Your life doesn't consist of your clothes and your car and your possessions. That's not life. What is your life? The end. Be rich towards God. The man in this parable that he's teaching about, God defines as a fool. So now as we turn back to 1 Samuel 25, Nabal is a major focus of this passage, and his name means fool. Now, he's not rich in crops, but he's rich in sheep and goats. So that parable that Jesus is teaching there, telling us that our life ought to and truly is, it's to, be, it's to be rich in your relationship with him. Jesus teaches there on the Sermon on the Mouth that where our heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. If you value who God is, you value his kingdom, you value him. Again, it's not, it's not the stuff. When you value the Lord above anything else, that's what, that's what it means for that which you value to be surrounding him in his kingdom and his will and his wants. So if he is your treasure, then there's where your heart is going to be. And out of your heart is what you speak. Out of your heart is what you do. So all of these ideas are wrapped together. So Abigail and David, their hearts are going to be geared towards the Lord. David needs to be corrected. Nabal, on the other hand, remains a fool. So here, Samuel 25, last week, just remember from last week, I titled it Pity, Compassion. We watch David have a, a, an incredible, miraculous, godly compassion for Saul that Saul does not deserve. We watch David image God's heart towards Saul. And to be an example, again, God, what God's heart is towards us is he pities us and has compassion on us in our lack and meets those needs in our lack. David, we're going to watch him lack pity tremendously today. It's just fascinating connections. The speech that he gives to Saul, you can line up to the speech that Abigail is going to give to David in this chapter, showing how their hearts are aligned. There's, there's a bunch of threads to connect but that's all the connection I'm going to do for you because we got a lot to cover. Here we go. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So here, just bullet point, we really haven't had Samuel much in the context over the last few chapters as it's really been focusing on uh, David and Saul's relationship. But again, here Samuel, an old man, an old prophet, the word of God that he spoke, none of those words fell to the ground. He was a man who served God his whole life. He was serving uh, the tabernacle of God his whole life. You can sit in the stories of Chronicles where Samuel contributed, gave spoils 
for the sustaining of the tabernacle in his day. He worked with David, uh, which is fascinating snapshot to get. So as we move forward in David's life, and he is making preparations for the temple to be built that Solomon ends up building, all of the different, the gatekeepers and the singers, all these all these offices that David institutes, a lot of it's going on back in, in Samuel's time and in Samuel's day as these things are being consolidated, official office, men being appointed. David and Samuel were working together. But as Samuel dies, again, the work of God is not tied to a man. The work of God is tied to God. So this image that David is rising. God's work is going to keep going even when a man of God dies. All right, verse 2. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And this is area uh, south and west of Jer uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So here in this introduction to the scene, we have, here's this man, Nabal. He is very rich. And the emphasis, again, it's put on his wealth. He has an abundance, the focus of this time. So we sat in this parable where there's, here's a rich man with a great harvest of grain and the, the storage of the grain. Here, this is, when you're shearing the sheep, this is the harvest for shearing the animals. So the animals, the wool is long on the sheep. He, has, he and his herdsmen, and you can picture like, you know, sit, sit in the movies in these, these caravans of tents. Um, and this man, he's gonna be in all of his opulence. He's extremely wealthy. You can picture him in his tent with all of its carpets as he's taking his ease as everybody else is doing the work. And there may be some other business men there with him in his tent. But here, this is a time of feasting. This is a time of celebration. Culturally, this is to be a time of generosity and hospitality. Look at what God has provided. And when you look at what God has provided, it's something that is shared with the community because this singular man cannot look after all of these animals. This singular man cannot shear all of these animals. It takes an army to have this industry to have this business going on, right? So everybody is partaking of the, the fruit of the labor at this time. That's the imagery that's being given to us. It was David a shepherd? So do you think David knows the shepherding business pretty well? That's going to feed into the conversation and the context. So Nabal here, his name literally means fool, stupid, impious. So when this child was born and he comes out of his mother's womb, did mom and dad look at him and say, there's a fool? This is, this is one of the, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, often names line up with character. So sometimes those names were given at birth and 
That's the character that is brought out by God in them. More than likely, Nabal has been named Nabal. He probably had a different name given by his parents. But in those of his household, his reputation, and as he's remembered in Scripture, when you say his name in translation, there's a stupid man. And not unintelligent, but his life consisted of his possessions. His life was not, um, he did not treasure God. He treasured his stuff. He's defined as harsh, so this means he was a hard man. He was a strict man. As we talk about his wife being linked to this man, so how did this, how did this woman who has intellect and intelligence and discernment and understanding and physical beauty get linked in marriage to a man who is harsh and strict and a fool in his behavior. Maybe he wasn't always that way. Maybe it was an arranged marriage. We don't have any of that background, but her character and his character are being contrasted throughout this passage. And again, Abigail is thrown up raised up, not vomit, but lifted up um, as an ideal woman, as an ideal wife. And as we watch her, her behavior, we're going to end up ending in Proverbs 31 this morning. Um, I call Julie my Abigail all the time. When I sit and I look at my wife, she has always demonstrated wisdom and intellect and discernment. She's beautiful on the inside. She's beautiful on the outside. She has made this man who can be foolish and have this heart of Nabal in a variety of different ways over the last 24 years. So tomorrow marks the date. I met Julie 24 years ago tomorrow. And again, I'm, I'm sitting in this context as I read this like, God sends Abigail into David's life, and his life is adjusted. His life takes on a different flavor and a different tune. They end up getting married after this scene. So I look at my life 24 years ago. The Lord sent a woman of beautiful appearance and good understanding into my life to redirect me towards him. And that's who Julie has always been to me. She's demonstrated wisdom and beauty inside and out. So this is, this is a special passage for me, for sure. So David hears... Uh, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day, on a good day, on a day of celebration. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David." So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. 
Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? And who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from, uh, break away each one from his master, literally split. So what he's calling David is a runaway slave. And he says, in the, sit in again the imagery of this. Picture this Bedouin type tent, Arab tent. He is a rich man. He's sitting on his couches of luxury. He is dressed in luxury. Again, there's going to be men in this tent who are his peers, who are his servants. David has sent ambassadors, 10 ambassadors for him to come and humble themselves before Nabal and present and make this request for uh, payment for services rendered. And this is a very just request that these men are given that we'll discuss in a minute. The language that we're going to be told in a minute is that Nabal reviled David's men, which literally means that he shouted at them and he screamed at them in anger. He attacked them verbally. So when he sits there and says, shall I take my bread, my water, my meat, and, and uh, that I have killed for my shears and give it to men that I don't know where they are from. You just see this crescendo. You can see his veins popping out, his face getting red. He is attacking them with his mouth. So here, again, in this context, we are told, we're given this definition of who Nabal is to begin with. He's a harsh, hard, strict man. He is evil, which means that he, there's little worth in his doings and is in his actions, even though he has been, quote-unquote, blessed with earthly riches. He's defined as the house uh, from the house of Caleb. Caleb's name means dog, so there's an insult there. And I think it's in the Septuagint in, in the Greek, the idea... Like Caleb's mean that L-E-B, it means heart in Hebrew. So the idea is he is as his heart is, is the description that's being given. Again, in this business of being a shepherd, there's all of the payments that need to occur. When these animals are out in the fields being led from pasture to pasture, from water to water, the wild animals are out there. This is a time when the Philistines are doing raids and attacks. So David is saying, when my men were present amongst your business associates, you didn't lose a single animal. The wild animals didn't take any of your animals. The Philistines didn't come and take any of your animals. None of your animals were harmed. My men who need to eat... And I'm looking for provision for these 600 guys. We didn't take anything that's yours. So in this culture, in this time, that's a just service and a good service and deserves a just reward. But again, in the parable that we started with, with Jesus, talking about a man whose life is consumed by his possessions, He's sitting in on, on a feast day, on a good day, on a day of celebration when he is rewarding others, but he's keeping for himself. And again, there's politics that are going on here. Everybody knows who David is. Everybody knows that Saul's been hunting David. It seems like the, the prior chapter of David preserving Saul's life when he had the opportunity to execute Saul has gone out into the community. People know who David is. 
Nabal doesn't want anything to do with David. He doesn't want to be seen as supporting him, so he's on Saul's team. But ultimately, he's just consumed with himself. No hospitality, which is hugely offensive in the Eastern culture. He reviles David's men, hugely offensive. Calls David a runaway slave, hugely offensive. All of this offense is being built up. Verse 14, so now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, to bless our master. And he reviled them. He shouted at them. He attacked them with screams. But the men, they were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were, they were like a wall to us, both at night and day. All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one, that one cannot speak to him. This idea of uh, the word for scoundrel, he's a son of Belial. He's a son of worthlessness morally. So here, David's men come. Screaming match happens. David's men go. Did I skip over the section? I skipped over verse 12, didn't I? I knew I was missing something. Back up to verse 12. You're welcome. Uh, Verse 12 says, David's young men turned on their heels. So the screaming match happens. They turn on their heels and go back. Then they came and told David all these words. David said to his men, men, every man gird on your sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with supplies. All right, so David is sitting in the insult, okay? We'll get into David's heart in a minute, because it's, it's expressed a little bit further in a couple of verses. So Nabal's men, his servants, know what's going on and what David is doing, that they are coming to kill. And he doesn't go and have a conversation with Nabal. He goes to Nabal's wife. She has a reputation in the household, in the community. So does her husband. The servant knows that he can't go talk to the man that is defined as Nabal to him I mean, think about this. He's going to a man's wife and is calling the man's wife the nickname Nabal, that your your husband's a fool, and she knows that he is. He's calling him a scoundrel, a son of Belial. She knows he is. It's speaking truth. It's not slandering his name. It's speaking what is truth in the context. If I go to him, nothing's going to happen. David and his men are going to come, and there's going to be a lot of blood. So he goes to the wife. What are you going to do? What do you do, women, when your husband's being an idiot? What's the conversation look like? Can you go to him in those moments? When I'm being an idiot, like when I'm in my flesh and stuff, it's usually not a good time to come have a conversation with me because I'm going to stick with my flesh and stick with my guns because I'm a fool, right? You ever done that, men? But she has an immediate need. There is a threat of life coming. And it's not just the threat of life to her husband or to herself. 
she has a care for her whole household. And you think of the, the amount of human souls that it takes to have this kind of business industry. She is responsible for those souls. And that's the, the character and the heart of this woman that is lifted up for us as, as we watch her act. So verse 18, Abigail, she makes haste. There is an urgency. She is hurrying. It says that she takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loads them on a donkey. And said to her servants, go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband the ball. All this stuff's just laying around. It's not like she's going to the servants, all right, go uh, crush the grain into flour and bake 200 loaves of bread. This This is a feast day. The food is already there. The abundance is already there. The wealth is already there. Nabal had everything in his hands to be generous and to recompense David and his men what they deserve. That's why David sent 10 men, so that the 10 men could be loaded with the goods to take back and share with all those that were involved protecting the sheep. Nabal held on to his stuff and whatever's going on in his foolish heart. His wife, open hand of generosity, and it's all right there, readily available, talks to the servants, load on the donkeys, send the donkeys, don't talk to husband. She's fixing the situation. We're going to come back to this in a minute. There's many commentators that think that she is demonstrating bad wife behavior by not telling her husband what she's doing. And I totally disagree with that. And we'll get through this next context and I'll define why. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill. And there was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, look at, da- look at David's heart here. Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness and nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now, what do you think of David? Is he a little over the top? I didn't get paid for the invoice that I submitted. So now I'm going to go to my uh, customer that I have invoiced. I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to kill all of his men. I mean, that, that's, that's what David's doing. Is that eye for an eye? Is Dave, does David have any kind of justification for his overabundant anger towards Nabal? He, he doesn't. David is sinning in his heart here. And not only is he sinning, he's, he's, he's invoking God's name, God do so, if my enemies, but he's also using vulgarity. The word there for the males is a vulgar term in the culture. So the translators have been nice to us and toned down and give us the idea that he's talking about the men of Nabal, but he's using a vulgar term here. So he is filled with rage, he is filled with anger, Why is it that David is demonstrating so much pity and compassion towards Saul as Saul is hunting him? 
and he's out in the wilderness anyways. His guys are there. They're just, they're just there, so they're being a wall just because they're there. And this guy's not paying him when he asked him to be generous. David is just overflowing in his flesh in this moment in regards to his anger. He is without pity. He is without justification. Probably sick of being in the wilderness, sick of being with these 600 stinky guys, right? You can sit in his emotion. It's like all of his frustrations and agitations for this extended period of time are all being thrown up onto his anger at the ball. And just sit in all of this. Again, his, his, what he is doing is totally irrational, but every single one of us know what it's like to be angry like this because we're not thinking logically. We have all these other things that are going on that are feeding into the emotion of the moment. And here's our beautiful Abigail, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and fell on her face before David. She's in a hurry. She's sent all these gifts ahead with the servants. When she sees David, she comes in, her, in his presence. She humbles himself and bows down on the ground before him. She falls at his feet and says, On me, on me, my Lord. On me, let this iniquity, let this guilt be. Women, have you ever had to stand in the gap like that for your husband? I mean, look at, look at what she's doing. And it's not, again, it's not, just, it's not just him. It's not just her spouse. Her husband has done something that is going to impact her entire household and community. And she's interceding. She's standing in the gap. And she comes to the aggressor in the moment and all of David's emotion with his 400 men and in boldness and in courage, she comes and she humbles himself before him and owns it. Her husband's behavior, she's, she's owning it publicly in attempt and again in wisdom and in the insight that she has to turn away David's heart in the moment. On me, my Lord. On me, let this iniquity be. And please, please, let your, let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Let me, let me speak to you. Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, this, this son of Belial Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. His name means fool. His name means stupid. His name means wicked. As his name is, so is he, this scoundrel. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Stupidity is with him. But I, your maidservant, I did, I did not see your young men, uh, the, the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, she's, gonna, she's going to invoke Yahweh's name seven times as she speaks to David. As Yahweh lives and your soul lives, since Yahweh has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself, from saving yourself with your own hand. Now, in that sense, she could be talking about what he did with Saul, or she is... She is uh, telling David what his behavior ought to be in the current moment, acting as though he has already been held back by Yahweh. She knows why she is there. 
She believes that she is being sent by the Lord. The Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed, from saving yourself with your own hands. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil, harm for my Lord be as the ball. And now, this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass, the crime of your maidservant. For the Lord, for Yahweh, will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. She knows about God's promises for David. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, of Yahweh. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet, a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh, your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. David would know that intimately, bringing up even what God's victory that he gave over Goliath, talking about Saul's pursuit of David's life, recognizing that Yahweh is protecting David's life. Verse 30, it shall come to pass when Yahweh has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart, no hindrance of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself, saved himself. But when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. I want to focus really quick. There's, there's three ideas that, again, it, this, this is a... How you comment on marriage and a woman, a wife, and her role in marriage has a lot to do not only with the Word of God, but it has a lot to do with culture, upbringing, time. Um, in many ways, Julie's and my relationship has taken on the very traditional roles I've had uh, in regards to I'm the one that's worked outside of the house. Julia's worked inside the home, maintaining the home, raising the children. We're going to sit in Proverbs 31. So we talk about the industry of my bride through a variety of ways. I can tell you right now, if it were not for the work of her hands, we would not be here. I, let me tell you this. When we were attending Calvary in Salt Lake, you know, I'm feeling this calling to serve the Lord, not knowing what it meant. I'm serving there at the church. I'm attending the Bible college there at the church. Pastor and I had a decent relationship, but there were a lot of things about my young, arrogant personality that he didn't like. And he had an open position on staff that others were recommending me for as the church's administrator, as they have this open position and they're looking for. He didn't want to hire me. Yeah, you can call him up right now. He remembers this story to the day. He did not want to hire me. 
If he'd only known me for a couple of years, by this point I've been saved for five years, walking with the Lord for four years, so I'm immature in my walk, I'm in my 20s, I'm immature as a man anyways, I'm arrogant, I I can think of one specific circumstance where somebody was maligning my wife, where I had to come in and have a conversation with him, and it was... It wasn't a rebuke to him, but I'm not, I'm not a gentle guy. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to politic that conversation very well. I just, I'm, I get kind of aggressive, so I was aggressive with him. So there are a whole bunch of things that he didn't like about me. You ask him today, why did he hire me for the job that he hired me for? My wife. Her reputation. Her character. My parents were there. My in-laws were there. He knew, he knew my support group around me that enabled him to take a risk with me that he wasn't sure about. If it were not for my Abigail that's over there, I wouldn't be sitting here right now because it was her character that the pastor was able to take that risk on me. And she's done that for me hundreds of times. I don't even remember what was my thought beforehand. What were we talking about? I don't remember. I love my wife. Can you tell? She's a good woman. Oh, roles in marriage. Um, you can tell where the comments, you know, how people interpret Abigail's behavior, uh, where people's comments are coming from based upon their views of roles in marriage. So one, this first one, that her silence in regards to her husband, many of the commentators will say that Abigail was wrong in usurping her husband's authority and going around him and doing something that he should have done. Um, So because she chose to be silent to him and not include him in this decision, she's being disobedient in her role as a wife. Totally disagree with it. She is standing in the gap for her whole community. And she's hiding it from her husband in the moment because she knows the character of her husband and she knows that he would forbid the actions that she is pursuing. They're going to save the lives of hundreds. So... She's not hiding to keep things from her husband. We're going to see in a minute, she's waiting for the right moment to have the conversation with her husband of this is what I did and this is why I did it. But she's standing in the gap of the moment of her primary relationship is with God. So to me, I don't think that she is out of line as a wife stepping around her husband in this role at all. The second thing that people malign Abigail for is calling her husband Nabal, a scoundrel. As his name is, so is his heart. Again, she's in the moment as an intercessor to speak truth. She's not lying about her husband. New Testament's really clear, Old Testament too. Love, love covers a multitude of sins. There's a lot of things that happen within marriages, within a household. It's, it's not public information. It's not, go- it's not to be gossiped about. It's not for wives or husbands to get together and slander their spouses because of issues that they may have. Sometimes private issues get thrown into the public sphere. 
Nabal's behavior is not a private household issue. His current context is a very public issue. And as she is addressing the man who is coming with his men to execute the other men in the community, she's speaking truth. This is his character. This is his reputation. This is his heart. He is doing what he does by nature. And he doesn't just do it to you. He does it to everybody. My husband's the son of Belial. That's, that's, that's not easy to say. But she spoke truth in the moment. The other thing that people uh, malign Abigail for is the very last sentence, when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant as though she's batting her eyes at David. Hey, David, when you, when you become king, don't forget about me and you know, invite me over, big boy. Because she ends up marrying David in a minute. But that's not her heart in this context. Her heart in this context. I mean, again, you look at her qualities just as a human being. As a woman who loves her creator. As a woman who loves her husband that doesn't deserve to be loved. As a woman who loves her household and her servants and her community. She is one who took the boldness and the courage and the humility to go stand in the gap in this current context. She is absolutely fabulous. And how she does it, it's like the, this is, this is not me. I would come up to David and I'd puff up my chest and I'd be, you know, don't be such a mean guy and remember your mercy for Saul, you should have pity on us, right? I mean, there would just be a totally different situation. So the words that are coming out of her mouth, how she presents herself in humility, please let me speak, please forgive my sin, I'm owning this. Here's the natural character of my husband, but I want you to remember who your God is. I want you to remember what our God has told you what he has appointed you for, what he has called you for. He has not called you to be a murderer, David. He has not called you to take vengeance upon yourself, to save yourself out of the circumstance. He has called you to trust him. You will be king. You will be a leader. Be a godly one. Don't execute innocent souls on this day that in the future when you stand in the role as leader in men and women's lives in your hands and you have to deal with this guilt. Don't let the grief of this kind of sin get you and hold you. Can you see her wisdom? Look at David's response to her. David says to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed is your advice, your discretion. Literally, it's, the, it's that taste, right? We're supposed to leave the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. Blessed is your advice and blessed are you. Because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, 
Surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Again, here's David is in his flesh. I can think of multiple times that I have been in my flesh. I'm thinking the wrong way. I'm, I don't have the wisdom and discernment that I need in, the, in a circumstance. And what does God do? He sends my Abigail to me. He, my, our God has sent my wife thousands of times to have a conversation with me. To, have you thought about this? Well, what about that? She is a woman, again, we're, we're going to get into Proverbs 31, and again, she's just, I have full trust in her and full confidence in her to, in her relationship with God, she constantly images for me what Abigail imaged for David in this passage. Blessed are you, Abigail. Blessed is the Lord God who sent you. Blessed is the advice that he gave to you. And I'm, I'm pronouncing this blessing on all because God has sent you and you took the boldness and the courage to say what needed to be said to turn me away from me, to turn me away from sin and to turn me back to my creator, to my savior, to my anointer, to my king. Awesome woman. Verse 36. Oh, man. I hate the clock. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, right? Imagine, you just have all the imagery. He is drinking it up, having the feast like a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much. Again, that discernment of when to have the conversation until morning light. So when it was morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. We don't know if he had a stroke, what exactly happened, but she gives him the information in regards to what he did or what she did. And he just, he's a dead man in his flesh, essentially. He became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days. So you can tell people are trying to care for him, you know, trickling water into his mouth to keep him alive and nurse him. But about 10 days, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now, just because you're an idiot doesn't mean that God's going to strike you dead. Go to Jesus when you're stupid and let him, let him, right? Let him heal your foolish heart. Let him heal your foolish mind. We don't have to be like Nabal. We use all of the different voices that the Lord brings into our life to get our attention, to redirect us back to him. But in this, God's judgment for him was death. Why? Well, I don't know. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded, my cause, pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. David's glad that he's dead, which is still, man, that's, that's just a, that's not a good thing to praise God for that, I don't think. You make your choice. He's kept his servant from evil. Praise God for that, for sure. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of, the, of Nabal on his own head. And David, you know, so again, Nabal's got a whole life of stupid that 
led up to the moment of his end. It wasn't just this singular circumstance. David, what a good guy. She was cute. David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke of her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Well, that's romantic, ladies. <laughs> hey, guys, go ask her for me. What are you, 10? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of politics going on here. We'll get to this in a second. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Sweet. In verse 43, David also took Ahinoam, what? Of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was in Galim. We'll get into some of the political context just because we don't have time this morning. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll begin here in like four weeks. We'll need a refresher anyways. Back to verse 41. The words that come out of her mouth to David's uh, servants. Here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Who is she imaging? She's imaging Jesus. John chapter 13, go read it. Jesus gives us the example. When you look at Jesus in relationship, father and son, Jesus became the servant to wash the feet of the servants of his father. Think of the imagery. Think of the love. Think of the humility. Think of the generosity. All of the authority that he had as son. He emptied himself to become like us, to wash us. That's the gift that we have of the newborn babe. This is the gift that we have as we remember communion. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have, that he is constantly here every single day. Worship team, come on up. I'd encourage all of you to, again, just go sit in meditation on the role of Abigail. I, as a man, have a lot to learn from this woman, Abigail, as she's presenting in the passage uh, it's really easy culturally to make fun of, hey, the wife is always the smart, intelligent, beautiful one, and the man is always like Homer Simpson. That may not be the case in your own marriage, right? And the roles may be flipped. We deal with spousal stupidity all the time, one degree or another, and I'll put stupidity in quotes, but we offend each other as spouses, right? We have all of these different circumstances that we, where we need the wisdom of God of how do we move forward in this? How do, we, how do we walk alongside of our spouses to correct something that they've done? How do we walk, how do we be that voice of the Lord and boldness and humility that Abigail demonstrates? As we turn to worship in these last couple of songs, just another meditation point in Proverbs gives us just further clarity of of, um, of Abigail, and I will publicly praise my wife because the description of the woman in this poem at the end of Proverbs is a description of my bride. So as I read this, 
This is for her. Who can find a virtuous wife, a wife of valor? I found one. Go get your own. She's mine. Her worth, far above rubies. Her worth is far above any worldly possession. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax. This is the industry, business, what she puts her hands to. She willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night. She works her tail off, provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. She doesn't need me to... Anyways, she considers the field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself. She, she puts her clothes in, in a position of working her tail off. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. She's not selling junk. She's working for the Lord, and her merchandise is good. Her lamp does not go out by night. Up before the sun, working after the sun goes down, she stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. This is making garments. She extends her hand to the poor, generosity. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of, of snow for her household. Harsh conditions, why? All her household is clothed with scarlet, the work of her hands. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She's the result of that. She's the cause of that, the influence of that. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sass, sass, I can't say that, for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come, no doubt. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Praise you, God. And on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household, that of her husband and that of her children, that of the servants, those that are helping do the work. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Amen, Eli? Her husband also, he praises her. Day in, day out, publicly, I have the best wife on the face of this planet. And that's true. Many daughters have done well, I bet. But you, Julie, you excel them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is passing. I love your wrinkles, too. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that one. 
But a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Women, men, be in awe of your God. Give her the fruit of her hands. God, I pray for my bride that you would give to her the fruit that you desire to produce through her life, through all of her labors. Let her own works praise her in the gates, in the public place. Amen.